0: This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, Lord, you know our hearts. You know the heart of everybody who has come here this morning, and we trust that no one has come here by accident, but has been drawn by you and your sovereign power to bring all people to yourself. We pray, Lord, now that through the power of your spirit, you would take my simple, meager words and use them in each and every one of our life to actually make us righteous in your sight without blemish, without imperfection or spot or wrinkle. Father, only you can do this. Only you can build us in such a way because us trying will always fall short. And so we pray that you would build us now. To your holy dwelling place. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Is anybody here uh, living in denial? I am uh, about the floors in our house needing to get cleaned. <laughs> Lisa and I will often be talking. We have someone coming over for dinner. We're kind of going through everything that needs to get done. And she will inevitably say that, well, we need to clean the floors as well. And I'll say, but you just cleaned them yesterday. Or doesn't it make sense to wait until all the people come over and then once they leave, the floors will definitely need to be cleaned and we'll be a lot more efficient about it. I don't think I've ever agreed with her about the floors needing to get cleaned. But then after cleaning them, she'll show me the dirty water tank from our fancy wet mop thing. And she proves to me that she's usually right. They definitely needed to get cleaned. Actually, as I was writing this, I realized I'm living in denial about most of the cleaning around our house, probably because I just don't like cleaning that much. So where are you living in denial? We all know people that are living in denial, maybe about their health, from refusing to acknowledge an unhealthy diet or lifestyle, from refusing to fully acknowledge, say, a cancer diagnosis. Oh, it's just a flesh wound, I'll get through it. We often live in denial about addictions. Well, I could stop this if I wanted to. I enjoy wine, but I'm not an alcoholic. We live in denial about relationships, either how good they are or how broken they are. And we often live in denial because we're actually afraid of admitting that truth. And when it comes to our relationship with God, I think it is easy for us to live in denial. We work hard to convince ourselves I'm not that bad. I I know I'm screwed up, but I'm not a bad person. Or we live in denial that we could actually be forgiven by a God. And so we constantly punish ourselves, thinking that if I just beat myself up, well, maybe that will make God like me more. Do you want to live in reality more than living in denial? Probably we do, and yet reality is a very scary place for us. It forces us to confront those deep, dark places and admit our screw-ups. But living in denial is not a good life strategy. Eventually, you'll run into this cold, hard wall called truth. And the more you've been walking along in denial, the more it will hurt when you smack right into it. So how do you get out of that? Well, our passage gives us a way out of this predicament, that Jesus is enough. That's really the name of our series through the book of Colossians. And it's what is our hope, Jesus is our hope, for living in reality, Instead of living in denial. And so here's what I want us to remember this morning, just this. Jesus is enough to make you beautiful. Jesus is enough to make you beautiful. And we'll look at this just under two points. Who we were and who we are. So who we were. Verse 21 describes who the Colossians, and us by extension, were before believing the gospel. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And the first way that many of us live in denial is that if we don't acknowledge that at one point we were God's enemies, we were naturally alienated from God. Now, most people kind of think, All humans start off with like a a zero account balance before God or whatever that deity is. And depending on what you do in life, you either add deposits to that account or you go in the negative if you screw things up. And, And this type of thinking is really common whether or not you're religious. Someone may not believe in God and yet for many people their life philosophy is I want to have more good things that I've done in my life than more bad things. And humans, we are really good at just like you do with your actual checking account balance, especially depending on how you know, much you're living paycheck to paycheck, you check to see how much money do I have in there. And in this similar way, we're often pulling up our moral account balance. Right? We are trying to see, all right, am I not overdrawn? Am I doing more good? We, we are, in one sense, living in this constant mental courtroom with our life on trial, making a case for why I'm not that bad, why I should have a positive account balance more than a negative accounts balance. And how do I know this is the case for so many of us? Because when someone makes a critical comment about you, what is your natural reaction? Well, probably, you you may not act like it bothers you, but what happens in your mind? You go into, like, full-blown lawyer mode. Right? Well, here's three reasons why I'm not that bad. And have they looked at their life? Who are they to speak to me like that? And they're just as messed up as I am. And don't they see how they're messed up over here? Right? Why do we react so strongly when someone criticizes us? Why is it that a negative comment will sit with you for days while a positive comment washes away with the morning shower? Well, maybe it's because even if the criticism's a little bit off, it rings close to home that deep down we know there is a case against us that we might actually have a negative account balance. And we're trying really hard to not let other people see what's going on. And that negative comment kind of pulls back the mask and makes us realize maybe we're not doing as good of a job of hiding this as we want to. And aren't so many of us, almost, it's like we're working a part-time job to keep others from seeing the worst parts about us. But there's something freeing about the truth. Maybe you've had that experience where after hiding for so long about something, you're finally ready to come out and admit it. And it's scary, but it's freeing. And verse 21 is giving you permission to tell the truth about your life. It's, it's as if God is saying, I know who you were. I know your past. I know even what you're stuck in right now. I know the dark places in your heart. I know the thoughts that are constantly running through your head. Now, if someone sits in front of you, right, and you're having this conversation with them, and, and they say, John, I've seen it all in your life. I, I, I've seen everything that you're trying to hide. But they say that not with words of accusation or words of hate, not threatening you or threatening to make you pay, But as they say that, they take arms of love and wrap them around you. And they say, I know who you are. And in that moment, with that honesty and love, you feel like perhaps I could actually loosen my grip on all these things that I'm trying to hold together and start living without all that baggage. So where are you living in denial? Where are you trying to put a fifth fifth coat of fresh paint over rotting wood. We all start out as enemies of God. And there's two ways that we are God's enemies. One is by our thinking, but the other, or sorry, one is by our behavior, and the other is by our thinking. Uh, the New Living Translation is helpful, and it says at the end of verse 21, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Now, we all get that actions can alienate us from God, but maybe we don't realize that our thoughts alienate us from God just as much. And it means that you could do a lot of good things, but the motive behind them is bad, and that is just as alienating from God. Jonathan Edwards writes, many without any sincerity of love in their heart have been exceedingly magnificent in their gifts for pious and charitable uses, and have thus gotten to themselves great fame, and have hand, had their names handed down in history to posterity with great glory. Many have done great things from fear of hell, hoping to appease God and make atonement for their own sins. Many have done a great things from pride, and many for a desire for reputation and honor among others. He's saying, don't look at a list of what someone has done and think that they're righteous, that God must be impressed with them because he's saying probably more people do good things for bad reasons than do good things for good reasons. So many people have wrong motives in their heart. And here's the interesting thing about God because in our world, right, we need things. We're all human, we're finite. We need others to survive. And so if someone does something good, but with wrong motives, it can still bring good. So say, for instance, someone is willing to make a, a large donation to a hospital, hospital to fund a particular type of cancer research. Now, they're only doing it, even if they don't admit this, because they love the praise that they get. And maybe they get their name on part of the building and they get all of these accolades from their community. But even though their motive is bad, well, the hospital still needs that money to do the research. right? So it does provide some good. But what if the person that you're giving good to doesn't need anything, right? Then suddenly the size of the gift doesn't matter because they don't need it if it's $100 million or a dollar. What matters is the heart of the person giving it. Is there a pure motive in their heart? Because if you don't need any of the money, why do you, you don't care how much it is, you care about the heart of the person. And this is how it works when it comes to God. Because he is the only person in the universe that does not need anything. And that means you cannot sway him with your gifts. You cannot sway him with how generous you are. It means, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love, I would have gained nothing. And yet so many of us are living our life trying to do things and we think that our efforts Our generosity, our good deeds, our sacrificial service for others is making it more likely that God will then reciprocate and do what we want. You're living like God actually needs all of these things that you're doing to impress Him. But you're not doing it because you truly love God. You're doing it for what you get out of it. And God looks at this and says, Well, you know, why are you, I don't need this money. I care about your heart. And how do you know? How do we know this is so often what motivates the good we do? Because what's the immediate reaction in your heart when after you work so hard for something and sacrifice so much for something, that thing doesn't go your way? Why, God, didn't you see that all that I've been doing for you? Is this how you're paying me back for trying so hard to please you? And there, our hearts are revealed. I'm doing this good more out of manipulation than love. And that puts every single one of us, even the most moral of us, in that category of those people that you love to look down on because they aren't trying as hard as you. And yet in your heart, there's the same root. We are all are living in denial. And yet we're also afraid to admit it. Because if someone really saw what happened in here and knew how hypocritical we are, and how addicted to sin we are, and how judgmental of others we are, and how unhappy we are so much of the time, who would want us? Like, who would want us if they could really see how ugly it gets? And this brings us to the second point, who we are. Paul goes on in verse 22 to say who the Colossians, and again by extension us, are now. But now he had reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, first notice, who is it that moves you from that category of being alienated from God to being right with God? It's God that does that. It doesn't say anything about your own effort. It doesn't say after you've done everything you can, then God reconciles you. No, it's all God. Now, what's the catch, you might ask? Uh, Lisa and I took this quick trip to New York City last week to uh, kind of celebrate our birthdays. And we were walking in downtown Manhattan near some of the piers on kind of the southeast side. And there's this museum with several old ships docked on the pier. And, and one of them was the Wavertree, this 335-foot cargo ship from 1885. And, and by it, there was this sign for free tour of the Waver tree. And I thought, well, that'd be pretty cool to walk through this old cargo ship Uh, But I thought, this has got to be a tourist trap. There's a catch. It cannot be free. And then we walked towards the end of the pier, and I saw another sign. Free tours of the Waver Tree. There's got to be a catch. You know, this is New York City. Nothing is free here. And I didn't want to ask. There's a few museum employees sitting by the gangway to the entrance to the ship. And I didn't want to ask them because I didn't want to get stuck in their trap. So I pulled out my phone, and I Googled it. And I saw this. South Street Seaport Museum we'll open the 1885 tall ship Waver Tree to the public on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays for free. I was still a bit skeptical. So then finally we walked up to the museum staff and I asked, is it really free to get on this ship? They're like, yep, completely free. You know, come on aboard, let's get your name and you can be on the next tour. God's reconciliation is completely free. And what often keeps us from accepting it is our disbelief of that. We're afraid to believe. We don't trust that it could actually be free. We feel like we need to add something to it. God offers to take up your case for free. He offers to end all the courtroom drama in your mind for free. Now you hear that you can be forgiven, right? So many people understand, oh yeah, I know God forgives me, but so often that forgiveness kind of just feels like God takes all the junk in your life shoves it in the back room, shuts the door, and you hope that no one else ever opens up that door and sees what's back there. Forgiveness can kind of feel like deception because, well, I know I screwed up. I have all this junk in my life, and it's just sitting in the back room. It's not really gone. Someone's got to pay to get rid of it. And that's why we need the middle part of this verse. Verse 22, by Christ's physical body through death, you've been reconciled. That though God's reconciliation is completely free for you, it is only free because it came at a great cost to himself. While we were waiting to take our tour of that ship, uh, another man uh, asked the employees about, well, how is this offered for free? He would lived in, I think, New York his whole life and had never been on the ship because they always charged. And I couldn't hear everything that they said. But essentially, um, there were a number of various foundations and donors that made it possible it to be free the tour was free for us because someone else had paid for that and given New York City prices they probably paid a lot in order to make it free and that is how you know that your forgiveness is free and full you look at the cost of that forgiveness the life of the son of God something of infinite worth is what it costs to bring that freedom to you See, God, in his forgiveness, he doesn't just ignore your failures. He didn't say, oh, they're not that bad. He doesn't just shove them in the back room and lock the door. He acknowledges how bad they are. He adds up the tally of it all. And he says, this can only be fixed by death. But then he adds, but it will be my death so that you can live. Uh, Martin Luther put it so powerfully when he wrote, God sent his son into the world and heaped all the sins of all men upon him and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross. You see what Jesus' mission was, was to come into the world to become a, a sinner in one sense through having our sins placed on him. Put it another way, God sent Jesus into the world and said to him, be all the worst parts about John. With his sin and his failure, and then go and face the judgment for that. Now, it's more than that, even, because that would just get rid of all of my baggage. It would bring my account balance back to zero, but it would not fill up my account. It would not, what the next part of the verse says, make me holy and blameless in his sight. And that's why we need Jesus' perfect life as well. Because Jesus' death doesn't just wipe the slate clean, but Jesus' life with his death, fills our account balance because what Jesus did was live that perfect life. That everything he did was motivated by pure love for the Father. That it was not selfish, it was not uh, for his own motives, but he did it out of love and that gave it infinite worth. And then what Jesus does is he gives that perfect life to you. He got straight A's in life. And then when he comes to me with my failing report card, he takes my report card and says, I'll take care of this. I'll go back and pay for this. But before leaving me, he gives me his perfect report card, wipes his name out on it and puts my name there and says, this is who you are now, that you have faith. Again, Martin Luther, in Christ's righteousness, I have no no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, in my own trying, he's saying. But I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. That is who we are. We are this mix in this life of, on one hand, we are sinners, but on the other hand, Christ has laid his life over ours and made us perfect in God's sight. That's why the second half of verse 22 is true. You will be presented holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. See, God's free salvation isn't like so many, quote, free things today, right? Where you basically get stuck in the system, and then you gotta pull out your wallet in order to make whatever it is actually useful, or get the thing that you want. What God has done is he has made the platinum package made free, The blood of his son, so that you can have full salvation. Holy is a word that it means godlike, it is resembling God, which means that it means you have no blemish or spot or wrinkle, you're perfect. And God makes you holy without blemish, not from a distance, where he's just kind of you know waving his hand, not temporarily, where you've got to reapply it in the morning. Not holy, just for those with bad eyesight who can't actually see the imperfections when you get close. But God makes you holy, without blemish. God makes you beautiful, before the most discerning of eyes. His. He doesn't see any imperfection. God isn't doing a quick makeover in your life. He's actually remaking you to be without blemish in his sight. And do you want that? Many of you know we just finished building a fence around our house, and I was reminded, we joked because many of you came and helped build it, that no matter matter how much you measure things and check things and double-check things, nothing you build is ever perfect. (laughs) There's always parts that are not square, that are a little bit crooked, that don't line up like you planned. And it is incredibly frustrating because that's the first thing you see, right, with any project you do. But what a wonderful reminder it is of how far we are from God. He is the only builder who makes things without any blemishes or imperfections. And so who would you rather have building your life? Him and his righteousness or your efforts, which no matter how hard you try, they'll still be crooked. God is the only one whose measurements are true, whose lines are perfectly straight whose junctions come together perfectly flush. And that's who Jesus was. He was the picture of a model human. He was perfect. And that's why that little detail in verse 21 matters. He reconciled you by his physical body. On the flight back from New York, I finished reading John of Damascus, who's this Christian from the 8th century. And he wrote an exact exposition of the Orthodox or Christian faith. And he Makes this wonderful point there that fits just perfectly. He says, for that which is not assumed is not remedied. Christ, therefore, assumed the whole man, even the fairest parts of him which had become diseased, in order that he might bestow salvation on the whole. Christ was the perfect man who then has become fully man." so that there is not one square millimeter of your life that he does not cover and fix and make beautiful. And that is God's plan for who you are in Christ. That in the eyes of the most demanding and exacting builder, you will be declared perfect without blemish or spot or wrinkle. And why? Because Christ, the blueprint of a perfect human life, has been laid on your life. So that when God looks at you, he sees the blueprint of Christ on you and he says, perfect. And God, that perfect builder, is now building you into that blueprint of Christ so that there will be nothing to hide. But your life and your soul and your body will shine forth with the glory of God's beauty. Jesus is enough to make you beautiful. And these first two verses in our passage were just so wonderful, I end up spending the most of the time on them. But if you look at that final verse, this is what Paul's saying to wrap it up. Never forget that Jesus is enough. One of the hardest parts of being a Christian is that we have this tendency to want to finish in our life what Christ has started. We want to think, okay, thanks for building the foundation, God, now I'll do the rest. But to, to think that I need to be doing something more now that I've trusted in Christ. And many commentators note in the, um, that Paul here uses architectural language. In the first part of verse 23, one commentator offered this translation, with your foundation established and your structure immovable. He's saying, stay in that gospel message that we've just heard. It means that you never get past Jesus. Jesus is enough for the beginning and the middle and the end of your Christian life. Did do you see the beauty of the Christian message, the gospel? It allows you to stop living in denial, to be honest about your sins, and it gives you a way to be fully forgiven. Because if we're relying on our own effort, it it means you're always going to feel the pressure to live in a little bit of denial about how bad things are. Because if you're honest about how bad things are, you'll end up realizing I'm in too deep a hole to dig myself out of. And what hope is there now? So, you tell yourself, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not too much of a sinner. I can, I can fix this. But probably every one of us will have at least one moment in our life where you smack into that wall of reality and you realize how screwed up things actually are. You realize you're way more addicted or broken or helpless than you've been telling yourself. And sometimes it's in those moments where you stand on that precipice where, on one hand, it looks so helpless. And yet, with Jesus, those are some of the most hopeful moments in our life because you're finally being honest about who you are and you're finally ready to be healed in the way that He wants to heal you. Not an outward quick makeover, but a transformation from the inside out. And maybe you're feeling like you're there now. What are you going to do? You can run, double down on your numbing medication of choice so you don't have to confront it anymore. Or in those moments, you can see that Jesus is oh so close to you, and he's seen every bit of you, and his arms are still open wide, longing to make you his, and to make you beautiful in his sight. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to see that Jesus really is this good. Father, it can seem so distant. Our pains, our screw ups, our sins feel so real, and forgiveness can feel so trite sometimes. But Lord, we pray that you would not just make these words that I've spoken, but that you would make them your living word to show us that this thing that we so deeply long for is so close to being ours. If we would finally admit our sin, the depths of it, and believe that Jesus is enough. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. And really the first step to that transformation is that honesty, to stop living in denial and to open yourself up to being honest with yourself. That's what confession is, it's that moment where God's arms are open wide, inviting you to come to Him. And He says, I've seen it all and now I just want you to admit it. So I'm going to read these words of confession from Psalm 32 and then give us a few moments. To silently pray ourselves oh what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight yes what joy for those whose record the lord has cleared of guilt whose lives are lived in complete honesty when i refused to confess my sin my body wasted away and i groaned all day long day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And Father, hear us now as we pray.